0: This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America.
1: Good evening and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehyes Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight...
0: The workers are very angry, if I can tell you. They know the only way is to unite The only way to get what we have demanded is to show the muscle.
1: That was union negotiator Ruben Maleka of South Africa's Public Servants Association on the possibility of a strike amid drastic cost of living increases. Details coming up. Also, the Russian-Ukraine war could have a profound destabilizing impact on the African continent. These stories... And more ahead on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Armed men raided a mining encampment near the town of Manguala in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo's Ituru province yesterday, killing between 30 and 50 people. Civil society leaders blame the killings on the Codeco Militia, which has built a reputation for attacking civilian encampments. Its fighters killed 18 people at a church last month and another 60 at a displaced persons camp in February. Reuters was unable to reach the group for comment. Attacks on civilians are daily hazards in Congo's eastern provinces, where groups like Kodeko and other warring militias, as well as the local Islamic state affiliate, routinely spar for territory and resources. Such conflict have claimed the lives of thousands and displaced millions more since the turn of the decade, according to the Norwegian Refugee Council. This month marks one year since Congo's government declared martial law in Ituru and its neighboring North Kivu province to quell the violence. But deadly raids have only surged since then, according to the Kivu security tracker, which monitors conflict in the region. UN officials warn that soaring prices of food, fuel, Fertilizers and other commodities due to the Russian Ukraine war could have a profound destabilizing impact on the African continent. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva.
2: Africa is still reeling from the socioeconomic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has plunged some 50 million people into extreme poverty. The continent is also tackling crises generated by climate change, conflict, and political unrest. Added to this toxic mix is the war in Ukraine. Ahuna Ezia Konwa is the UN Development Program's Assistant Administrator and Regional Director for Africa. She says Russia's invasion of Ukraine is reverberating badly on the continent.
0: Things that really were stunning for the continent and a rude awakening is how much it depends, almost 90%, dependence on external sources of goods for what it needs to keep its population alive, food and medicine.
2: As Konwa says, the impact of soaring inflation due to price hikes of food, fuel, fertilizer, and other commodities will soon begin to bite. She says Africa's reliance on imports of food and other goods from Russia and Ukraine will create another front of discontent and possibly unrest in a growing number of nations. UNDP Africa's senior economist Raymond Gilpin says rising inflation is putting several large investments on hold across the continent. He cites as examples the development of a huge steel mill complex in Nigeria and fertilizer plants in Angola. He warns tensions are rising in hotspots such as the Sahel, parts of Central Africa and the Horn of Africa as the Russia-Ukraine war begins to fester.
3: Particularly in urban areas, low-income communities could spill over just um, to uh, violent um protests and violent violent protests and probably also violent um, riots also um countries that have elections um, scheduled for this year and next year are particularly vulnerable because this could become a trigger.
2: UNDP officials are calling for global action to address the problems in Africa, resulting from measures taken half a world away. They say the long-term consequences of this new global crisis pose great risks to peace and stability efforts on the continent. These dangers, they note, come at a time when sub-Saharan Africa accounts for nearly half of global deaths caused by terrorism, as seen in the record number of coups last year. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva.
1: Villagers along Cameroon's northern border with Chad and Nigeria have been holding daily protests in front of government offices, demanding that the military intervene and deploy troops in areas where attacks by Boko Haram have increased. Protesters say in the past three weeks alone, at least 35 villagers were killed after an alleged attack by the Islamist militant group. Mokiedwin Kinzeka reports from Yaounde, Cameroon.
4: The governor's office in Cameroon's far north region saw hundreds of people Monday protesting recent attacks on their villages along the border with Nigeria and Chad. Village leaders blame Islamist fighters with the terrorist group Boko Haram for killing at least 35 people in the past three weeks and stealing livestock and food. They raised money for villagers to travel to the regional capital Marua to seek help from authorities. Pastor Joseph Bayoha of the Evangelical Church of Cameroon in Turu, a village on the border with Nigeria, spoke via a messaging application. We He says villagers have come to tell the governor, who is the highest government official along Cameroon's northern border, that a day hardly goes by without reports of Boko Haram fighters abusing or killing civilians and stealing their food and cattle. Bayoha says villagers on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria and Chad want the government to immediately deploy troops to protect them and their property and bring back peace. He says they feel that they have been abandoned by Cameroon's military and government to face Boko Haram alone. Village leaders say Boko Haram has infiltrated the northern towns of Kolofata and Amchide and the villages of Turu, Gambaro and Kumshe. Local media including state broadcaster Cameroon Radio Television CRTV reported hundreds of villagers protested this past week in front of at least eight local government offices They pleaded for Cameroon's government to deploy troops to protect them Governor of Cameroon's Far North region Mijiawa Bakari spoke to CRTV Je Bakari says Cameroon's President Paul Bia considers their plea for more troop deployment to protect villages along the northern border with Nigeria and Chad legitimate. He says villagers should be ready to collaborate with troops that are already on their way to reinforce the military's presence along the border. Bakari says villagers have not been abandoned by the military as they claim. Bakari says Bia also ordered financial and material assistance to village militias that collaborate with troops in fighting the terrorist group Boko Haram. He did not give details on the assistance or how much money the militias would receive. Bakari said many young people who defected from Boko Haram after the death of of its leader Abubakar Shekau last year may be rejoining the group for lack of jobs. He pleaded with them to be patient and said the government intends to provide subsidies to militants who surrender so they could do farming instead. Cameroon's military on Saturday dismissed local media reports claiming troops meant for the far north were sent instead. To fight rebels in the western regions. The military said troops were on standby to protect civilians wherever and whenever the need arises. Moki Edwin Kinzuka for VOA News,
1: Yaounde, Cameroon. Unions representing more than a million government workers in South Africa say they will go on strike soon if the state does not give all public service employees a 10% raise. But President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration says it cannot afford this and it already spends almost a third of its budget on salaries for police officers, nurses, teachers and others. The government also points out the wage demand is almost double the current inflation rate. Darren Taylor reports.
5: According to the government, its lowest paid workers earn about 8,000 rands, or $530 a month. The highest paid get monthly salaries of almost 200,000 rands. That's more than $13,200. The National Treasury warned recently that the wage bill was bloated and a threat to the public purse. It suggested many public servants were overpaid. Outraged labor unions said more than 2 million lost their jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic. They said looting by senior African National Congress, ANC, officials had decimated taxpayer funds, not wages.
0: Under the conditions that we are, 10% is very minimal. We've been very moderate to even go for 10%.
5: Union negotiator Ruben Maleka of the Public Servants Association says the cost of living has risen so dramatically in the last year that the average state worker in South Africa is living in a debt trap.
0: The inflation is almost 6%, it's 5.9%. Moody's, the rating agency says already, predicted that South African inflation will go higher up to more than 8 percent. The price of the fuel, I'm sure most of us could not even afford petrol when we go to the petrol stations. Even the cooking oil that is more than 100 rand. we're talking about transport costs that are highly unaffordable.
5: On top of the demand for more money, Maleka says the government must give monthly housing subsidies of 2,500 rands to its employees and permanent jobs to tens of thousands of temporary workers such as police reservists.
0: We also want to see that government absorb all you know, assistant teachers in schools because we have seen through COVID those are required personnel in the public service and we know that the public service has been depleted. Government has not been imposed. We also demand that The next six months, we want government to start filling all vacant positions in the public service.
5: Economists say the government can't afford all this and realistically will be able to increase wages by a mere 1.5%. That puts union bosses like Maleka on a collision course with state negotiators. It raises the possibility of a strike paralyzing the country, with public transport and schools shutting down, and maybe even hospitals and police stations. The workers are
0: very angry, if I can tell you. They know the only way is to unite, the only way to get what we have demanded is to show the muscle. We are approaching the essential services committee so that they can even enter into a minimum service agreement so that even the essential service workers can be able to exercise their right to strike. We want to see police officers, we want to see workers
5: able to strike. While unions threaten chaos if they don't get what they want, the government's attitude so far is that it cannot give what it doesn't have. Unions bite back by saying that if the ANC is able to allegedly steal so much public money, surely it can afford to pay state workers more. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg.
1: University students in Zimbabwe have called for a shutdown of all tertiary institutions backed by teachers, nurses, and other public service workers in a bid to force the government to revoke steep tuition increases. More on the story from Bulawayo. The
3: Zimbabwe National Students Union says the hike has pushed tuition fees upwards of 70,000 Zimbabwe dollars or around US $420 a semester students call that astronomical and say they are faced with dropping out as their parents struggle to deal with the country's socioeconomic economic crunch and stagnant salaries. Observers say civil servant salaries are around 30,000 Zimbabwean dollars or U.S. $175. Meanwhile the Zimbabwean National Statistical Agency, Zimstad, put the food basket price at 68000 or U.S. $412 per month for a family of six. Citizens are demanding a halt to runaway inflation and economic meltdown and an end to the overwhelmed public transport monopoly system. Security was tight today on campuses around the country and in places like Bulawayo's suburb of Pumula North. Police were urging citizens to go about their business as usual and not to hit heed the stairway solidarity call. Students stayed away from the Great Zimbabwe University in Masungo. And at the University of Zimbabwe and the National University of Science and Technology, there was a heavy police presence. Boris Nguti with the Zimbabwe National Students' Union Zinasu says the call for a shutdown was inevitable.
0: As the today's movement, our call is very clear, our concerns are very clear. We tried to negotiate with the Minister of Higher and Teacher Education, Amun Murwira, Professor Amon Murguira. We wrote three letters to him. We also dropped a petition at Parliament uh, under our banner of Zinasu. We then made consultations uh, with students around the country because the Minister was not responding. He was refusing to set a negotiating table for the students to have their issues addressed. So we made a unanimous agreement with the students in this country to say no. The minister is re- is refusing to act. The minister is refusing to take action. So what shall we do? We agreed that we are going to shut down all institutions of higher learning in this country.
3: Teachers and nurses union called upon members to join the stairway call. VOA got a copy of a stand letter from the civil servants employer the public service commission urging heads of departments to monitor workers who fail to report for work Robert Masaraore of the Agricultural Rural Teachers Union says the student demand is unavoidable
6: this is at a time where millions of our learners are dropping out because they cannot afford pay to fund for education some students and teacher students are not asking for free education but the slashing of the existing tuition fees
3: FMO, a social political analyst agrees that the demands are legitimate. Everything necessary must be done to ensure change in Zimbabwe. And if people fold their hands and do nothing about it, then the country is just going to go into its knees further and further. So the idea of a shutdown is uh, a, a good idea. The question is whether those that are, are calling it are going to be organized enough to sustain it. No way and others say that it's the people's responsibility to change the direction of the country as it heads in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. The News,
1: means Africa's largest community of Chinese immigrants and their descendants is now in South Africa, where families remember how they escaped poverty in their homeland. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg.
7: Vagrants doze in doorways, and the smell of burning trash fills the air on Commissioner Street, a run-down and dangerous section of inner-city Johannesburg. But a careful observer will notice a few pagoda-style rooftops, decrepit buildings decorated with dragons, and shop signs with faded Chinese characters. These days, China is South Africa's biggest trade partner, but ties between the two cultures began back in the 1600s, with Chinese convicts arriving from a Dutch colony in what is now Indonesia. Then, in the 1800s, Chinese migrants attracted by South Africa's gold rush set up shop here, establishing what would become the mining city's first Chinatown, says historian Melanie Yap
2: when uh, word started uh, seeping out of uh, gold mines and diamond mines becoming uh, attractions. And many people came out here in search of uh, wealth. And so Johannesburg, in fact, in Chinese, is called Gamsan Gold Mountain.
7: Migrants, however, encountered racism in South Africa long before a white supremacist system of apartheid was ushered in back in 1948. The Chinese were banned from mining and faced other kinds of discrimination.
2: The Chinese, with everyone else here being classified as part of a particular racial group, there were only certain things that were open to you. So you, technically, you could only go to school and live in the areas that were designated for you.
7: People of different races were even barred from marrying. That didn't stop third-generation Chinese South African Yolande Dreya and her husband Wynard who risk being sent to jail for their love.
2: Because we were breaking a law that's on the statute and, you know, they could have definitely have arrested us. We get every now and then
3: uh, a comment from the next generation. Thank goodness for guys like you, because you made things so much easier for us. Because we were kind of uh, breaking the mould at the time. We were, we were you know, pushing against quite a lot
5: of resistance.
7: Things have changed in South Africa since the advent of democracy in 1994. Now there are Chinese South Africans in government, like Michael Sun, a Johannesburg city councillor who is with the Opposition Democratic Alliance. But, he says, racism is still a problem.
5: I've been many times a victim in terms of racism and, uh, you know, bigotry, uh, racial slurs. It happens in the United States too. I think this is where the the the, the Stop Asian Hate movement started, you know, we really need to, you know, start something similar in in South Africa.
7: South Africa's old Chinatown was a hub for early arrivals, who were mostly Cantonese speakers from China's south. Now, as more Mandarin speakers move in, there is a new Chinatown in Dean, a safer suburb. Some 350,000 ethnic Chinese residents are now estimated to be living in South Africa, where they are part of the Rainbow Nation, celebrating the country's fusion of diverse cultures and people. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg.
1: In Ghana, a modified coffee seedling and a new farming practice are helping the country achieve steady growth in coffee production, which had markedly declined over the past decade. Women farmers are taking the lead in producing coffee, as Sananu Torud reports from Accra. Scientists
6: at Ghana's Cocoa Research Institute say they have developed two new varieties of coffee seedlings that are very promising. Abraham Akpete, a research scientist at the institute, says they have good qualities.
0: They, they are very high yielding and then they are relatively um, tolerant, I will not say resistant, tolerant to pests and diseases as well as moisture stress. And then they have uh, what we call good cup quality. About their drinking. They taste very well.
6: Experts say that the new seedlings are reviving Ghana's coffee industry and that women are playing a big part in that growth. Industry figures show the number of women farmers has jumped by 22% in the past five years. The new varieties are specific to Ghana's environment, growers say, and are more likely to produce good yields. Amy bet aku is a coffee roaster, and she explains how the new varieties have benefited women farmers.
0: What that does for our women farmers in particular is that they are able to farm robusta without breaking their backs because now the effort that is put into it is less.
6: According to coffee researcher Michael Ousumenu, coffee bean production facilities have also increased, lowering the amount of green coffee beans being exported for production.
0: A number of local roosters have come into the system. And so the export has dwindled to a point where almost no coffee was being exported because the local roasters were picking up everything. So you see the numbers for exports have really gone down, but not necessarily the production itself.
6: Industry researchers say more than half of Ghana's 15 new coffee roasting companies are owned by women who pay more for the beans from local farmers than exporters do. Coffee roaster Quanstin uses Ghanaian spices and flavors in her products. They are then sold in local markets or exported abroad, including to the U.S. and Europe. She says it is important for Ghana to maximize its coffee potential.
0: You could see that the coffee coffee culture was growing. People also had access to global markets, so they were traveling, they were experiencing coffee, and they were understanding the usefulness of coffee in general. So it was very obvious to me that that revolution was coming to Ghana, and it was important for us to position ourselves in a manner in which we could also be a game-changer in the coffee industry globally.
6: According to the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, among the tropical beverages of coffee, cocoa and tea... Trade in coffee makes up the largest part. The Ghanaian government says its goal is to continue growing coffee to outperform the country's cocoa production, or at least match it to generate more income. Sena Anu for VOA
1: News, Accra, Ghana. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wohib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokvilia Barrow and our engineer, Pete Hunley, thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America.